we are in the third week of our series that we're calling Unconditional Family. And as I said, we're trying to figure out how do we experience the church family the way God designed it to be experienced. And this is one thing I know about every family that's represented here this weekend. We all have family rules. Now, they may not be written down, they may go unstated, but we all have rules in our family that we know we're supposed to abide by. For example, they may be no running in the house, please shut the door when you leave, you know, no food upstairs, no sharing of family secrets, we keep everything within the house, right? But we have these rules. And in fact, I had rules growing up, just like you did. One of the big ones to my dad was no running at church. And that was a very, very important rule to my dad. And at about the age of five, I discovered just how important and seriously my dad took that rule because after church it had been raining and I was running with some of my friends and I fell and had mud all over me and I'm telling you when I got home he wore me out Uh, my dad's life verse was beat him he will not die and hello I'm here I'm here and look how normal I am right and so you know um, here's another one that we had as a family rule this is this is kind of weird we were not allowed to talk during a thunderstorm We lived in this little 900 square foot house, six of us, one bathroom, and whenever a thunderstorm would come through, my mom would gather us in the living room and we would just sit there and stare at each other. And we were not allowed to speak. So I grew up thinking if you open your mouth during a thunderstorm, a lightning bolt will come through your lips, down your throat, and explode you, right? And so later on as, you know, I got older and I actually went to school and was a science minor and I realized that you could talk during a thunderstorm. I... I asked my mom one day, I said, mom, why, why, couldn't, why weren't we allowed to talk during thunderstorms? And she says, well, it's because my mom didn't allow us to talk during thunderstorms. And I'm like, wow, generational rules, right? Now that just tells you my grandma was brilliant. She had six kids in a little house and she thinks, I know how to get 15 or 20 minutes worth of quiet, right? So, you know, we all have these family rules and the reason we have these rules, we know that in a family, if you don't have rules, it's gonna be anarchy, it's gonna be uh, chaos and confusion, it's going to be dysfunction. Now, in the very same way as a church family, we have rules. The good news is we don't have to try to sit around and figure out which set of rules we go by. Is it your rules? Is it my rules? Whose rules do we go by? We go by God's rules. And what's cool is he's actually written them down for us in a book called the Bible. And when we begin to live by these rules and abide by these rules that God has given us as a church family, what happens is there's less chaos, less confusion, less anarchy, less dysfunction. And slowly we get to experience the family, the church family, the way God designed it to be experienced. So in this series, every week we're looking at a different family value. And this weekend we're talking about the importance of obedience as it relates to God's word. The importance of obeying and living out God's word. If you have your Bible, Acts chapter two, while you're turning, let me just kind of bring you up to speed. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screens. Also, if you haven't downloaded the Get Hope app on your smartphone, you can go to message, click there, and all the verses will come up, the main points, place you can take notes, email it to yourself, and you'll have a permanent record. Acts chapter two. If you're familiar with Acts chapter two, that's a great chapter because a lot of things have been going on. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. 50 days later, the ascension takes place. And then right after that, the Holy Spirit shows up. So a lot has happened in chapters one, chapters two of Acts. When you get to Acts chapter two, Peter now emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, he goes out and finds a street corner in Jerusalem and shares to whoever will listen the gospel, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And it tells us in chapter two that so many people, 3,000 people heard this message and 3,000 Jews immediately converted from Judaism to Christianity and they began to follow Jesus Christ. In other words, they repented, they they were baptized and they joined this new church family. 
And then when you get to chapter two, verse 42, uh, Luke gives us a snapshot of what life looked like in this new church family. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Notice they devoted themselves to these things. And if you turn over a page to Acts chapter four, you can see the result of this devotion beginning in verse 32. All the believers were in, are one in heart and mind. And that was probably the first and maybe the last time that that ever happened. But they were all of one heart, one mind. They were totally united. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. Can you imagine that? For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the cells and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And I'll just go on record and say that was probably church at its best. I doubt that it's ever been duplicated. But what I want you to see is that this lifestyle was made possible because of a little word that you may not have noticed in chapter two, verse 42. It says they were continually, here's the word, devoting themselves. By the way, Luke wrote the book of Acts. This word devoting seems to be one of his favorite words. If you go back to chapter one, verse 14, he uses it by saying, these with one mind, all with one mind, these disciples, these followers were what? Continually devoting themselves to prayer. You go over to chapter two, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see it just used over and over and over again. It's devoting, 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 devoting. My point is this. This new community, this new church family was marked by devotion. We are in this together. We're not giving up on each other. By the way, the word devotion means in the Greek, the Greek word here is a binding promise or a pledge. In other words, these people had bound themselves not only to God, but they had bound themselves also to one another. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. That's a lot different than the way most church families work in our society today. In fact, we live in a society where a commitment, a devotion to a church family, to one another within that family is almost a thing of the past. We've become very, very consumer driven. And there's almost a mentality that says, you know, if the church meets my needs, I stay. If it doesn't meet my needs, I move on. If I like the messages, I stay. If I don't like the messages, I move on. If I like the decision that was made, I stay. If I don't like the decision, I move on. If I like the music, I stay. If I don't like the music, I move on. I got an email this week and it ended up by saying, about the music, dot, dot, dot. Don't mind the new music but just can't adjust to guys in skinny jeans. So that's the world that I live in. See, now we have fashion critics as to how, how we lead. But you know, if I don't like their jeans, I move on. We just move on. But you gotta understand, at the heart and the core of this word for devotion is this idea of enduring a situation, sticking with something, sticking with one another, even when it would be easier to walk away. Let me try to give you an example of what devotion is, is all about. How many of you ever, have you ever had a weekend where it rolls around and, and you've had a long week and work has been tough and you've had to deal with cranky people and maybe you and your spouse feel like you've been at each other all day and your fantasy football team lost. I mean, it's just been a bad week, right? And so, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking you get up on the weekend and Sunday morning, Saturday, like, man, it sure would be easier just to stay home this weekend. It sure would be nice just, I don't know, we could do yard work, go to the pool, catch up on Facebook, 
Why don't we just do that this week, right? And so you're thinking about staying home. Just raise your hand. Have you ever had a weekend like that? Just raise your, come on, we're in church, be honest. I got my hand up, it's called Saturday. Every Saturday, I feel that way. Laura's like, get out of bed, you've got to go, you're the pastor. I absolutely cannot stand Saturday service. I wanna be at the football games. I, I would even go to a wedding on Saturday, and you know how I feel about weddings. You know? I would go to Beer Cana. I don't even like beer. But I would go give, you know, hope people rides home because they shouldn't be driving. Those kind of things I would, I would do on Saturday. Uh, my dream one, one day is, by the way, is to do away with Saturday and have all of our services on Sunday, as many as it takes to get everybody in the doors. And uh, I'll give you some reasons for that. But we all have those times, man. We, I, we just don't want to go. Here's my follow-up question. How many, even though you felt that way, you decided, oh, let's just go. And you, you showed up at church anyway, and you received something positive out of it. Maybe you had an encounter with God and you felt like he spoke to your heart or maybe you were discouraged and you met somebody in the lobby or maybe something that someone said to you or a song that you worshiped with and somehow it gave you encouragement when you really, really needed encouragement. And you walked out of the building and you went back to your car and as you were driving out of the parking lot, you thought, wow, I'm really glad I didn't give into the temptation and stay home. I'm really glad I made it. Or maybe a small group. I mean, you come home from work, especially in the winter, it's dark at five o'clock, it's cold. You gotta feed the kids, you gotta get your homework done. They gotta get their homework done. And uh, all these people going out to get baptized. So just, that's okay. They gotta get their wetsuits on and everything because I don't think we heated the water. They give them something to think about. But anyway, um, <laughs> So, you know, you're like, man, I don't know. But you go anyway, and afterwards when you return home, you're like, I am so glad I didn't miss small group. My point is this. There will always be times in your life as a Christian when doing the right thing is gonna require effort, it's gonna require commitment, it's gonna require devotion. It is just part of spiritual growth. There will always be days when it will just be easier not to make the effort. But you and I both know that everybody sitting here listening right now is devoted to something and you are going to become what you're devoted to. So when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ and part of a church family, I think every one of us, we need to ask ourselves this question, what am I going to devote my life to that will conform me to who and what God wants me to be? Now, I'm just gonna be honest. If you, if you have the guts to ask yourself that question, it's gonna require you to look at your priorities. And it's gonna require you to look at your values. But I gotta tell you, in a church family, the way God designed it, people are devoted to one another. People don't give up on each other. People don't walk away from one another. And it's never easy to make that kind of commitment to one another in a church family. But that's what's happening in Acts chapter two. Look what it says in verse 41. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now look at this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, the community is like, we don't know what's going on among that group of people, but we like what we see. And they were so impressed by how the church was living out and devotion to one another and the relationships with one another. They were like, we just can't stay away from it. And they were being added to the church daily. By the way, don't think of the church as a building. That's, a, that's, that, that's not the way it is. It's, think of it kind of as a balloon. The Greek word for church, ecclesia, called out one. And as these people in Acts chapter two, 
As they were being called out of the world system to follow Jesus, they became a church family. And as they grew, got like a balloon, as they expanded, they became interrelated and they became interwoven into one another's lives. They were devoted to that. But this weekend, I want you to see that maybe the most important thing that they were devoted to was the teaching of God's word, the Bible. It says in chapter two, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And this is important because see, the key to being devoted to one another starts when we are devoted to the word of God. I'm gonna show you why I say that. Now, here's my question. They were devoted to teaching. What did they teach? After all, they didn't have the New Testament, right? They didn't have Paul's writings, Paul's letters to the churches that eventually made their way into the New Testament. They didn't have Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Philemon. They didn't have, you know, 1st and 2nd Corinthians or Thessalonians or Timothy. They didn't have any of those. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have the book of Revelation to the end of the first century. So, so what did they teach as they got together? Well, we know for sure that they had the Old Testament, so they taught that. We know that they had the audible teachings of Jesus, and I say that because except in John chapter eight, where there was the woman caught in adultery, remember Jesus got down and wrote in the sand, except in John chapter eight, there's, there's no other evidence that Jesus ever wrote anything down. It's not like he kept it all in the journal. So, so they relied on what they had heard from Jesus' teaching. I'm sure Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, they, they taught what they heard on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure they taught what they learned as they traveled with Jesus. I'm sure they retaught the parables. Uh, I'm sure they taught what they learned in the upper room discourse, John 13, serving one another. Hey, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Uh, You are the fruit, I'm the vine. All that he talked about, the coming of the Holy Spirit. I've got to leave so the Holy Spirit can come. I'm sure they taught these things, but the bottom line is they were taught. Now let me tell you why this is so important. The backbone of every new young Christian is teaching. You can serve, you can give, you can pray, but I'm telling you something, you cannot grow. Your life cannot be transformed into the person that God desires for you to be and that he created you to be without a steady diet of the teaching of God's word. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You need it to begin to grow. I remember when the boys were babies and and that alarm would go off in the middle of the night. You know what I'm talking about. You know, there's that, there's that, there's that scream that pierces the dark. It's like, you know, and, and you know, there's only one thing that's going to shut that alarm up, right? So I remember Laura and I working out a strategy. We were pretty young when we had our first kid, 24 and 21. And I remember we worked out a strategy and it was basically this. She got up and took care of the baby and I would pray, Okay. So while she's in the kitchen getting the bottle ready and everything, I was in bed interceding with a kind of groaning that cannot be uttered, sounding something like like that, right? And I'm like, what is taking so long? This alarm is still going off. So finally the bottle would be ready and she would go into the nursery and she would pick up that little bundle of joy, that little alarm, and then And if you have a baby in your home or you've ever had a baby in your home, you know at that moment that is the greatest sound in the world, just silence. It's like somebody just hit the button and it shut off, right? Why? Because that baby that was so hungry is being fed, is finally being nourished. In the same way, understand one of the basic facts of spiritual pediatrics is that as a spiritual infant, as a new Christian, you need milk. You need nourishment that you can handle. But understand, just like with our children, it doesn't stop there. 
In fact, Paul did write a letter to the church at Corinth, and this is what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And if you continue to read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that he rebuked the Christians in the church at Corinth because they never grew up. They were still acting like babies. They were still acting like adolescents while they should have been growing and learning and obeying and applying God's word to their life. The writer of Hebrews addresses the same issue. Hebrews chapter five, verse 12. He said, by this time, you ought to be teachers. By the way, let me just say something here. Every once in a while, I hear people say, I need deeper teaching. And it sounds so spiritual. This is my advice to you. Learn to feed yourself. You shouldn't always have to be taught. At some point as a Christian, you should get to the point where you can feed yourself. Who do you think feeds me, you know? You've got to get there. It's not my job. I'm telling you, if your Christian life is based on what you get from me in 30 minutes on the weekend, you are spiritually malnourished. It was never intended to be that way. The best thing I can do on a weekend is give you a principle, a truth, some type of motivation to get you to begin to take some baby steps in your spiritual journey. But your spiritual nourishment is not totally up to me. You need to learn to feed yourself. That's what's going on here. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be talking to other people. But you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word. While you should be teaching other people, you still need the basics. You need somebody to come along and reinforce the ABCs all over again. You still need milk, not solid food. In other words, he said, by now you ought to be just chomping down on a T-bone steak of doctrine. Sorry, vegans, right? But Paul says, you're still sucking down infamil. And because of that, your growth has been stunted. Look at verse 13. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. Now, this is so important. Who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. In other words, Paul's saying it's for the mature who, who spent their time in God's word. Now, this is what he's saying. And basically, they figured out the rule book. They've been able to spend enough time in God's word, they figured out right from wrong. By the way, a good example of the benefit of a steady diet of God's word can be seen in the life of Jesus. Just read the gospels. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, he grew up, he was a sharp kid. At 12, he was teaching the people in the temple. He became a carpenter and worked with his hands till about the age of 30. Around that time, he went public with his ministry. And I think that we often forget that when Jesus was on this earth in the flesh, he was fully God, and yet at the same time, he was fully man. And I don't think that our finite minds can ever totally comprehend this idea. We just can't wrap our minds around it. But what it means basically is this. While he was fully God, he was still tempted, he was still tested, he was still tried just as we are. He still had to work through the process of making decisions just as we do. And it's amazing how Jesus, as he worked through that process, as he made decisions, it's amazing how he incorporated God's word into his life. You see a great example of this, Matthew chapter four, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. That was kind of his coming out party. Everybody knows he's going public with his ministry and then he heads out into the wilderness. If you pick it up, Matthew chapter four, verse one, it said, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Maybe one of the great uh, understatements in scripture. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So we have temptation number one. Satan says, Jesus, just snap your fingers and you can turn these stones into bread. You can do it after all, you're God. But see, Jesus has a decision to make. And for many of us, it would be so easy to justify and rationalize why it would be okay to do this. But Jesus processed it. How would he respond? Matthew chapter four, verse four, Jesus answered. And it's interesting. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 13. It is written, 
Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He passes temptation number one. Temptation number two, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple. It's about a hundred foot drop from the top of the temple to the ground. He says, Jesus, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? Drop a hundred feet. It's not going to hurt you. Everybody's going to see miraculously how you land. You don't get a scrape on you. You don't even sprain your ankle. And they're going to be so impressed. They're going to follow you. But what what does Jesus do? Once again, he's got a decision to make. Verse seven, Jesus answered him. This time he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he passes temptation number two. Temptation number three. Now Satan turns up the heat. He says, Jesus, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will give you everything you could possibly want. You do not have to go through the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. You don't have to go to the cross, the cross you know that in about three years from now, you're gonna have to face and deal with. You're not gonna have to take on the sins of the world. If you'll just bow down to me, I'll make all your dreams come true. But again, how did Jesus respond? Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. My point is this. When we find Jesus faced with an issue, faced with a decision, he asked himself, what does God's word say what is written? Now, let me just say this. This is why this is important. Some of you, as you're listening right now, you are facing some huge, big, serious, complicated decisions in your life. It could be relational. I felt like I've been inundated this week with prayer requests about relationships and marriage. It could be relational. It could be financial. Maybe it has to do with your education. Maybe it has to do with your employment, right? But whatever it is, you need to be asking this question. What does God's word have to say about the decision that I'm getting ready to make? Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Throughout my week, I hear a lot of stories People tell me stories, they email me stories, things that are going on in their life. And many times those stories begin with two words, if only. If only I would have said no to the affair. If only I hadn't gotten into that business deal. If only I hadn't have been so stubborn. If only I hadn't have been so greedy. This is what I want you to understand. The amazing thing about God and his word is that he wants to help us avoid the if onlys of life. He wants to help us make decisions that will put us on a path, not not only the path that he wants us to be on, but deep down inside, it's the path that we want to be on. But if that's gonna happen, I gotta tell you, somewhere you have to have the right standard. You've you've gotta have the, the right guide. You've got to have the right rule book, and a lot of you don't. And I'm just gonna be honest with you. A lot of you, you have no black and whites in your life, no absolutes whatsoever. Everything in your life is a big, mess of mushy, gray, right? And the problem with having no absolutes is when you have no absolutes, everything's relative. There is no right, no wrong. Everything kind of slides on a scale. Every kind of thing kind of depends on the situation. And I just want you to know, if that's the way that you're navigating through life, you are just asking for trouble. Because when you don't have absolutes in your life, guess what we do? We turn to things like reasoning. And we live in a culture where we think we're smarter than God. And it's not that we don't know what God's word says. We're just smarter. We got so much new information God never had, right? So we turn to our reasoning. We turn to our logic. We turn to public opinion and political correctness and and, and feelings, right? And I don't know about you, but I can't always rely on my reasoning. 
And there are days I'd better not rely on my logic and you can hardly ever count on public opinion. I definitely can't rely on my feelings. As I look back on my life, most of the time I trusted my feelings. <laughs> I've done some pretty stupid things. I mean, how many times have you said, and I'm just gonna be honest with you ladies, you're bad about this. It just feels right. So you're gonna marry this guy? Yeah. Is he a Christian? Nope. Does he have a job? Nope. Do you have an education? Nope. Do you got a record? Yep. <laughs> so you're gonna marry him? Yeah, it just feels right. You know, and man, feelings ought to be danger, 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 right? Can't depend on your feelings, you can't depend on your emotions. I'll give you some examples. Sometimes, guess what? It feels right for me not to forgive people. Even as your pastor, sometimes it just feels right to carry a grudge. It feels right to make that person that hurt me grovel. It just feels right. Here's the problem. God's rule book, God's word tells me that I'm to forgive you as, you've, as he's forgiven me. Now, how does God forgive me? He's forgiven me totally and unconditionally. In fact, it tells me, don't even let the sun go down on your anger, which makes moving to Alaska very attractive. Because <laughs> there you can be angry for weeks and months because you don't have to worry about that. But I don't think that's the principle there. I think you got to deal with it in a timely manner. Why? So it doesn't begin to fester. It doesn't grow, Right? So God's rule is very simple. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Now, this is why this is so important. Not because you feel like it, but because it's the rule. Another one is accept one another as we've been accepted. You know why Christians really struggle with acceptance? We think acceptance means approval. Well, if I accept them, I approve them. No. Let me tell you something. God accepted us long before he approved of us. Romans chapter five, verse eight. While we were still sinners, he gave his son to die for us, Right? He was ready for that relationship. Let me tell you why it's so important that we accept one another as we've been accepted. You will never influence anyone in your life that you don't first accept. You'll never impact someone who doesn't feel accepted by you. So the rule's very simple. It doesn't matter if I feel like accepting you or not, or that person or not. The rule says I do it and I accept as I've been accepted. So we have to be very, very careful about our feelings. Here's another one. It's dangerous to rely on your feelings when it comes to marriage. Laura and I have a great marriage, 37 years coming up Christmas. And you know, when we go away, I was telling Gary, he's kind of like my right-hand guy here on staff. We went away a few weeks ago and we came back and Gary said, how was it? I said, man, like being teenagers again. I mean, we just giggle and date and get dressed up and we have the best time there. You know what? I still every day can't wait to see Laura, see how her hair looks and what she's wearing. I'm telling you, she's a hot grandma. I'll tell you that right now. I, I'm still head over heels. Let me tell you something. There are days I do not feel like loving her the way Christ loved the church. There are days I don't feel like putting her needs above my needs. And I'll just be honest with you guys. There are days that she doesn't feel like loving me the way she should. And I hope you will pray for her. Okay, please do that. But here's the thing. According to God's word, the most important thing about marriage isn't your feelings. It isn't romance. It's not your happiness. It's commitment. It's about a covenant that you made with each other and it's about a covenant that you made with God. I had a couple in my office, I told you this, and they came in and she sat down and she immediately, the tears, just the waterworks, you know. What's going on? Our marriage is on the rocks. Why is it on the rocks? I don't think we love each other anymore. And I'm like, whew, I thought it was something serious. And I said, it's not based on you loving each other. It's based on a commitment. You, 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 you be obedient, the feelings will follow, right? 
So we have to be really, really careful about allowing our feelings to determine whether or not we're gonna stay married. You see, when faced with a decision, let me just, this, our lives would be so much simpler. Our lives would be so much better if we just got in the habit of pausing and saying, God, what does your word say about this? What is written? And the great thing about having God as your standard is he never changes. He's immutable. It's one of his attributes. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Now, let me just say something. If you are relying on culture for your standard, you're not gonna have a clue what to believe or do. But you know why? It's constantly shifting. Is constantly changing. I'll give you an example. I hope I don't offend you, but I probably will. A generation ago, you know what somebody would have said? Same sex what? Yeah. A woman's right to choose what? Right. But see what happens. Oh, now we're smarter than God. So culture shifts, culture changes. I can't imagine my granddaughter turned eight on Thursday. I can't imagine what life's going to look like for her in 20 30 years because it's constantly changing, right? But you got to understand, God is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will be the same tomorrow as he is today. You don't have to worry about his issue. You don't have to worry about what kind of moods he's going to be in, right? He's not worried about being politically correct. He's not worried about even being fair. You know what he's concerned about? Because he created us in his image, he's, cre- he's, he's, he's concerned about what's in our best interest. And he says, here's my rule book. And this is how to experience the life I have for you. Let me just, how much trouble, how much heartache would we avoid if we just said, wait a second, before I make this decision, what what does God's word say, right? I was talking to a guy just a few days ago and he had an affair a couple of years ago and I just asked, I mean, through God's grace, they they were able to hold it together and, and, uh, but as he was talking to him, he said, I don't know, man, he says, I just, I just feel like it's never gonna be the same. But this is what I wanted him to understand. You did the right thing by staying together. But sometimes when we break the rules, life just gets more complicated. And God says, that's why I give you the rules. You know, there's a proverb that says this, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's not that God doesn't forgive us and it's not that God's not a God of grace. And it's not that God doesn't heal our wounds, but they often leave scars, right? So God says, don't even go there. I was talking to a same-sex couple one week and they literally were crying because they were like, man, we, we want God's blessing on our life. And so what do we do? And by then they had adopted a child. What do we do? And, and if we separate, what's it gonna do to her? And, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, first of all, they didn't teach us this in seminary. I said, this is what I know. I know that God's a, a God of grace. I know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But sometimes when we color outside the lines and we don't follow the rules, life just gets more complicated, right? But we're not gonna give up on you. I wanna just close by reminding you that uh, when we gather on the weekend as a church family, we, we gather to learn practical truths from God's word. That's what we do. And since these truths, these principles, these precepts are the key to living the life that God has designed for us to live, it's very, very important that we actually know what the rules are. And to know the rules, we're gonna have to spend some time. See, ignorance is not an excuse. It's like when you're driving or doing something, you're breaking the law and the cop stops you and says, and you say, well, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that rule. He said, yeah, we'll talk about it in the back of the police car. Go ahead and get in. You know, it, it, he doesn't really care it. 
He wants you, it's your job to know the rules. As a follower of Jesus Christ, it's your job to know the rules. Now, I told you guys, I grew up in Durham, and uh, I'm one of the few white people that ever graduated from my high school, Hillside High School in Durham. And, um, and if I could be anything I wanted to be, I would be an African-American pastor. Because I just love, I mean, my role model is T.D. Jakes. I just, I love how he sweats, and I love the passion, and I would love to know his tailor. I'm just telling you, I love T.D. Jakes, right? But when I was growing up, and I would, you know, and I was driving around, I grew up in Christian family, church, and also I would often listen, you know, to African-American pastors on the radio, and I'll never forget when my dad and I were driving one afternoon. I was probably 13, 14, 15 years old. And uh, it went something like this. I'll do my best imitation. This pastor said, the Bible says, see, that's, see I wish I could, I don't know how you do that for a whole hour, but they, you know, that, the Bible says, and an idol mine is the devil's workshop. And it was dead silence. And I thought he went off the air. <laughs> and then he said this, did the Bible say that or did my mama say that? Well, his mama said it, because it's not in the Bible, right, right? Some of you aren't laughing because you thought it was in the Bible, right? Here's, that's the problem. You hear somebody say, cleanliness is next to godliness. And you're like, I wonder if that's in the Bible or if that's just something my mama told me, right? <laughs> or God helps those who help themselves. God say that or Mark Twain say that? I know I've heard it somewhere, right? Right? Let's not be like that. Let's not be ignorant. Let's be like the Bereans. This is what it says about the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of, mo look at this, Paul says, of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. He said, they're better Christians than those over in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Wow. This is the great apostle Paul, and they're checking up on him. I'm telling you something. You ought to be bringing your Bibles to church. We could be, we could be making all that stuff up right there, right? You don't know. You don't know. They didn't take it at face value. They checked it. Now, let me just say this in closing. Our ministry here at Hope Community Church is based on and will always be based on the word of God. We are under its authority. When we face an issue... When there's a culture crisis going on, we, 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 we don't ask what does society think, what's fair, what's politically correct, what's our professor's opinion. We don't, we don't ask that. We ask one simple question. What does the Bible say? What's the rule book say? And I'm just going to tell you, if you will devote yourself to the study of God's word, and if you will begin to obey and apply what you learn, I promise you this, I guarantee you this, it will, put, it will have a shaping influence on your life, and it will put you on the fast track to experiencing the life that God designed for you. Sure, it's nice to have around. I'm sure it looks great on your coffee table, right? But if you pick it up and study it and you begin to apply it, it's gonna change your life. Now, it could, it could be daunting. You know, sometimes you don't understand it. So we have some great classes that we offer here at Hope. And uh, there's a card just like this at, out at uh, the Next Steps counter. But we have a lot of classes coming up this fall for men, for women, for marriages, for forgiveness, all kinds of care, finance, anything you would want to know, what does the Bible say about this? We're gonna come alongside and help you. And I'd really encourage you, go to the website, sign up for some of these classes. But you, you gotta get in the habit of learning it but more importantly, obeying it, obeying it. And when you do, your life will begin to change. But until you do, you're just gonna continue to wallow around in the same old mess. What did Jesus say? You'll know the truth and what it will do, it'll set you free. But you gotta know it, you gotta know it. 
Let's bow together. Let me just ask you before I pray, you're devoted to learning and obeying God's word. Because see, it's important when we get there, it will transform this church family into an unconditional family. There'll be less chaos, less confusion, less dysfunction. We'll all be on the same page because we understand the same rules. And we'll love as we've been loved, not because we feel like it, but because it's what God said to do. And we'll accept as we've been accepted, not because we feel like it, but because it's what God said to do. And we'll forgive as we've been forgiven not because we feel like it, but because it's the rule. And we'll be an unconditional family. And we won't give up on each other. God, you're an awesome God. This is so simple. We just have to do it. Give us the guts to follow through. In your name we pray. Amen.